welcome to Dental Brain Crops. I'm your host, Chelsea Myers, and today I am joined with Trey Lawrence. He's the general counsel for the AAO. Trey, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to have you. So general counsel for the AAO, I'm sure there was a journey getting there. Talk to me a little bit about your history, and then I'll go into some of my questions I've got for you today. Yeah, absolutely. So as general counsel for the AAO, I head up our legal and advocacy teams. So the legal side, that's primarily what we're going to be talking about today. So I'll save most of that information on the advocacy side. That's all of our federal and state lobbying work that we do. That's on behalf of orthodontists and their patients specifically, of course, but really have taken even a broader uh, view than that and, and really see ourselves as working on behalf of the dental profession as a whole and dental patients as a whole. So prior to the AAO, I was at a, I went to law school here in St. Louis at Washington University, graduated in 2001 and for 18 years was at a big law firm based here in St. Louis and offices in a number of other states doing litigation work. So I was in court um, in different areas, nothing directly related to healthcare, but a lot of those legal tools, you know, kind of carry over once you've got the basic tool set. Um, you can you can learn the subject areas pretty quickly. But uh, so did that for 18 years, and then I've been at the AAO for almost five years, and have been general counsel for close to two years now. So really, what I like to draw on from that background um, pre-AAO was even though I was not in healthcare specifically. A lot of people in the healthcare law world have kind of been on the transactional side for their whole practice. So that's more of a corporate focus and, you know, mergers and contracts and those kind of things. I, I think it's a little more unusual to have somebody in healthcare law that was in litigation. So is actually in court and can tell you, you know, I've seen multiple times the way, you know, how do juries look at information? How do judges look at issues? All of those kind of things. And that's the piece that I really try to bring to our members and the rest of the dental community through social media is having been in court for 18 years and see how things play out in real life there. Yeah. And it's incredibly valuable because it's, of course, what we all want to avoid, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, we're here trying to do good and do good by our patients, do good for our communities. And so um, staying out of court would definitely be um, <laughs> the goal. But actually, I've got some really unique questions and I'm not sure even which order to ask them in, but um, I loved this. You have this document that you sent to me and I perused it. And as I was reading it, it was sparking all kinds of questions of mine and then rem reminding me of conversations that I've had. But you call this your legal inventory. And the suggestion is to, I'm just going to read it here, um, compiling uh, legal issues that your practice most encounters or potentially could result in legal liability at some point in time. And so will you talk to me a little bit about what prompted you to make this? And then what are some of those heavy hitter issues that are super common in the industry. Yeah, definitely. So like you said, I, I mean, it's, it's pretty universal. Nobody wants to get sued. Nobody wants a dental board complaint. Everybody wants to stay out of that. So, you know, by and large, I found that practices really do want to comply with the law. They want to do what's right. I mean, they want to do what's right by their patients. They want to do what's going to keep them out of legal trouble. But just when you talk about the law, it's just this huge kind of amorphous cloud of information. And you hear, you know, things on social media and rumors from colleagues and all of that. And it just becomes it's almost un, insurmountable where do you start and that's really what I try to do through this legal in, issue inventory is give practices a very concrete hands-on nuts and bolts way to start how do we start to chip away at this you know of course it doesn't mean you're going to 
in one swoop take care of every potential liability that your practice faces but i feel like this gives practices a good place to start and so that's just walking through that process of a hey, what are the what are the issues that we confront? You know, what, what are the problems that come up with patients? What are the, the things I've heard about online that can be a legal liability? Now let's list those out. Now let's find out the answers to those. Now, you know, we'll use that as a checklist of working our way through some legal issues and then build from there and continue that process in the future. So, you know, I, I think some of the areas, some of the areas are obvious. I think the areas where the blowups with patients happen all the time, the patient contracts, the divorced mom and dad kind of scenarios, um, the things that really cause real world trouble in your practice, you recognize that those can have some legal implications. The, the kind of the silent killers that are out there that I get really worried about practices. I mean, certainly HIPAA is this omnipresent, just we know it's out there. We know it has a lot of requirements, but who has all of them memorized? And then kind of within that specifically social media and marketing is such a huge part of practices day to day lives now. And there's so many pitfalls there. And I think so many of those are more of the hidden ones that you don't think about you know, until you get a nasty letter from the dental board or, or, or a nasty letter from a government agency, that kind of thing. Those are the ones in particular that I really want to make sure the pay, or practices are aware of. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So when you say social media and HIPAA, some things that are going through my mind are like pictures of patients. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. So obviously we use pictures in our practices to promote our practice and the work that we're doing. Um, and as a as a consumer, I like seeing that. In fact, I don't think that I make many purchases without seeing several positive reviews, right? And I like seeing that in picture form. But as a patient, um, I may have some other ideas about what I'm comfortable with and not. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, no, that is absolutely. I mean, with the social media, you know, so heavily driving patients' choice of who they see. And then, like you said, I mean, social media is a very visual medium. So those pictures really are crucial for practices. But there's several, I think there's several layers of legal requirements that you need to make sure that you're thinking of when you do all that. So first of all, A is make sure you have the patient's consent to use the image and making sure you're doing that in a responsible way. So, you know, just walking up to the patient and say, hey, do you mind if we take your picture and use it? And the patient says, oh, sure. And then you snap the picture. That one's not going to cut it under HIPAA. HIPAA is very specific that you need a written release from the patient. There's certain uh, the department of HHS has some specific requirements that need to go in that release. Uh, making sure the patient understands the scope of what the picture is going to be used for, um, some other things like that. So A, make sure that you get a release. And then beyond that, make sure, um, well, related issue to that is, you know, but the before and after pictures are a very popular thing to put on social media. Obviously, practices do good work. They want to show it off. Uh, there is a what's perhaps a misconception that if you're only showing the teeth, you're not showing the rest of the face or you have the rest of the face blocked out, that you don't need a release from the patient in that situation. That's a very gray area under the law, but that's one of my soapboxes that I'm really trying to raise awareness about because I think the trend of courts is going to be to require release even for just the pictures of the teeth. There has been one state so far where court has looked at a HIPAA case where only the teeth were shown the practice said you know we blocked the rest of the face out it's not personally identifying and the court said no the teeth are so unique to each individual that even a photo of just the teeth is personally identifying 
And so that can be a HIPAA violation. So that's just one court so far, but I think with the trend of, you know, overall trend of courts is patient protection and kind of expansion of HIPAA. I think other courts are going to go to that too. So that one in particular, I really want patient or practices to be careful about using pictures, even of just the teeth without getting a release from the patient first. So what about like longer term treatment, specifically orthodontics is a longer term treatment. And let's say that a parent has signed a release when a child is 16 or 17, but now they've crossed over into adulthood. Do we have to have them re-sign or can the, you know, does that make question make sense? Can the, can oh, the child cool. be not okay with the fact that their teeth are being used now that they're an adult? Yeah, no, the, the child may definitely still be okay with it, but the challenge is when the child reaches the age of adulthood, then suddenly any parental consents that the parents had given for the child up to that point are no longer binding. So, uh, yeah, it, there, there are several things, including the photo release, that once a patient, if a patient turns 18 during the course of treatment, then you need to revisit, um, and that can be... Certainly the photo releases, once a patient's 18, you probably, uh, the safe practice is going to be to get a new photo release signed by the patient themselves instead of mom and dad. Another thing is the authorization for release of information. If, if the child was you know, not an adult yet when they started treatment and mom and dad have signed all the documents, then obviously you've got authorization to talk to mom and dad about the patient's treatment. But once that patient turns 18, you need to get an authorization from the patient that says that you're allowed to discuss information about their treatment with mom and dad. So there's there's two or three things that when that patient reaches adulthood and mid-treatment, you need to make sure that you've got records in place that you probably didn't need when, when they started treatment as a child and mom and dad had signed everything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, and then one more question I have on the um, on the picture front. Uh, you know, when we go to big dental conferences or any big event, usually there's some sort of photo release that you're signing within that, you know, those long documents. But let's say that your practice or organization is just hosting some sort of community event um, and pictures are taken there. Does the same level of scrutiny apply? Or if I take a picture of, you know, 300 people having donuts outside of our practice, is that okay? Yeah. So the a the, the good news is you don't really need to you don't need to worry about HIPAA there because the 300 people just eating donuts there's no um, information related related right. to their medical treatment at that point so you don't need you don't have the same HIPAA concerns that you do sharing patients information the you know the the the, probably the fuzzier legal question is whether you need just a name, image, and likeness type of release from the 300 people eating donuts. I think most courts have said that, you know, when you get people in the background of a picture, you're not directly using, you're not intentionally using their name, image, or likeness for promotion of your practice like you are if you have a picture of one patient and you're featuring that one patient. So I think you're safe there on both of those fronts. Now, there may be, you know, some weird wrinkle of law in a particular state, but for the most part, the general trend is you don't have the same concerns in that situation as you do of a picture featuring one patient. And especially if you identify them as a patient or otherwise talk about information related to their treatment in that. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So along those same lines of doing fun things as a practice or organization, I came across some of your content that I found very valuable and it was, um, distinguishing the difference between just having a raffle and having, and holding a sweepstakes and needing to know the difference between those two things. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, definitely. So this is when I talk about the, the hidden pitfalls of the social media promotions. This is one. And it's a big one because if you are violating your state sweepstakes law, that can get very costly very quick if you dinged on it because I'll get to the substance of the law in a minute, but on the penalty side, there's usually pretty hefty financial penalty. So let's say there's a $300 fine per violation. Well, if you're uh, promoting your practice or promoting a, a contest like that online and you've got 10,000 followers on social media, then most states are going to say you just committed 10,000 violations of that law. And at $300 a pop, that gets expensive pretty quickly. So. Wow. When, when do those kind of promotions fall under state sweepstakes law? There's three elements that a promotion has to have fall under sweepstakes law. And this is true nearly for every state. So first of all, there has to be an element of chance. So if you're doing some kind of promotion where every patient that does something, you know, gets some kind of a prize, you're not doing a drawing. So that's not going to be a sweepstakes. If you have a drawing in it or some other random selection of winners, then that could be a sweepstakes. The second requirement is that there has to be uh, the patient has to provide consideration to be entered. So that's a fancy legal term for the patient has to do something of economic value to enter. So if you have a drawing where like, let's say you have a, you know, if it's a pediatric dentist and you have a coloring contest and everybody that colors a picture of the dentist dog or whatever gets entered into a drawing. Well, that's not economic value. So that's not going to fall under sweepstakes law. But if you get entered in a drawing because you provide either because, you know, if you're a case, all new case starts get entered in a drawing. Clearly, there's economic value there or everybody who provides us a, you know, a name, a family or friend member, a potential lead, then you get entered into a drawing. Courts have held that there's economic value to a lead for a business. So that could potentially fall under sweepstakes law. And then the third element is there has to be a prize of value. And in most states, the threshold is fairly low. We're talking like 40 or $50. Oh, okay. So if you have a drawing, patients have to do something of economic value to be entered in the drawing and there's a prize that meets the value threshold, then that could fall under state sweepstakes law. So you want to make sure you know what your state sweepstakes law is. The easiest way to get into compliance with it, this is one of those, you know, a lot of these legal problems don't require thousands and thousands of dollars with an attorney to fix. You can find an attorney who knows sweepstakes law. I mean, I've done this for the AAO. You, you contact one of those attorneys, they give you a template that meets the law in your state. Normally the biggest thing is having written terms and conditions for your contest. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a, a no, uh, no purchase required for entry kind of option, making sure that you say the start and the end date. I mean, basic stuff like that, but you can set up a template you know, work with a lawyer one time. And then from then on, every time you do one of those contests, you just fill in the blanks on the template and it's a real easy process, but you just need to make sure that you know, you know, that that's potentially an issue and work with an attorney to get all that set up. And that makes sense. So it sounds like it, we can do it, just do it in the right way. And okay. Yeah. Right. That keeps it fun. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Great. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about some, um, we touched on social media, but talk to me about some major marketing do's and don'ts. What can we say? What can we not? What's important to know there as we're starting out, particularly if we just decide randomly, okay, I want to start a, you know, an Instagram account for my practice and I'm handling it myself. What do I need to know right out the, right out of the gate? Yeah. So one of the big things that you have to recognize is that the requirements on what practices, what dental practices can say in their marketing is a little different. It's a little more restrictive than just businesses in general. 
And that's because dental boards, I, most state dental boards rules specifically have a rule saying that dental practices are held to a higher standard of truthfulness than other businesses. And that's because the public places a higher level of trust in a dentist or an orthodontist, you know, or other dental specialists because of their education and, and those kind of things. So that's the first thing is recognize that even though, you know, any business advertising, obviously you can't say things that are untruthful, but dental boards in particular are going to hire, hold, excuse me, dental practices to an even higher standard of truthfulness. So you need to make sure that anything that you say in an advertisement can be factually supported, that you've got some kind of evidence to support what you say. So that, that then applies to things like comparative claims are a big challenge. So, you know, businesses all the time will say, oh, we're the best car dealer in town or we're the best whatever in town. When it comes to dental practice with that higher level of of factual support required for what you say, how do you demonstrate that you're the best, you know, dental practice in your town? Or how do you demonstrate that your doctor is the most skilled or the most knowledge? Those kind of comparative claims are very problematic. Some states dental boards actually say you can't do them, but then others have still taken action on those because of the challenge with demonstrating those. And then that also goes for, you know, treatment methods or materials, you know, our we use Invisalign and it's the best aligner uh, out on the market. Well, again, how are you going to demonstrate that? So those kind of things are very um, challenging and you need to make sure, you know, now if it's something like um, our, our, our dentist or our orthodontist has the most experience of anybody in town. Well, that may be something you can factually support because you can say, oh yeah, he's been in practice or she's been in practice since you know, longer than any other orthodontist or dentist in town. So you would have the support there. So that's a big category are those comparative claims. There are other kind of wrinkles under states, uh, dental practice acts and their regulations. One, don't, don't say that you have pain-free dentistry or pain-free treatment. That's specified in many states. Um, advertising as a specialist can be a challenge. There, most states have specific requirements about the education in particular that you have to have received. If you want to advertise yourself as a dental specialist, it has to be in one of the fields of specialty that are recognized by the ADA and you have to have gone to a CODA accredited educational program in that specialty to advertise in those fields. So those are the kind of things that are a little unique to dental practices and what they can or can't say and, and those apply you know when we say advertising it doesn't just mean like print ads or that kind of thing social media definitely falls under your state dental board's advertising restrictions mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense okay so speaking about um talking to patients online and communicating with people in that format let's talk a little bit about negative reviews um i see Every, I'm sure you do too. You see more of it than I do, but I see things all across the board from really almost robotic, same response every time to a negative review with some companies and then all the way up to getting into what feels like a bit of a battle online with patients. So what is the recommendation? Yeah, I know all of the, this is where the lawyers and the marketing people kind of butt heads here because I know the robotic 
type of responses, like you mentioned, are not preferred from a marketing perspective, but there are definitely some legal reasons why practices use that. So it, the, the challenge with responding to patient reviews online, whether good or bad, the, the risk is always going to be committing a HIPAA violation. And I think the piece that a lot of practices don't realize is how quickly you can get into having committed a HIPAA violation, like that threshold for what constitutes protected health information is so low even just acknowledging that the patient was a patient at your practice is disclosing protected health information and can get into HIPAA violation territory. And so that's why those robotic type of responses many times have been really carefully calculated to not reveal anything factual about the patient. So like from the AO's perspective, the ones that I always recommend to practices is if you get a negative review online, our, our two sentences that we always use are, it appears there's been a misunderstanding, please contact our office to set up a time to discuss. So I'm not disclosing anything factual about the patient. I'm not even acknowledging that they were a patient at the practice. I'm just asking them to come in to talk to us. And the other thing I'm doing, this is not HIPAA, this is just from my court background is you're not admitting liability. That's another thing I think practices don't realize is, so admissions of liability are a huge deal if you end up at trial or you end up in a dental board proceeding, because an admission, if you've admitted liability, then that really lowers the evidentiary burden for the plaintiff in a malpractice case or the dental board in a, in a dental board complaint. So plaintiff's attorneys in particular get really crafty with twisting things that people say, and they weren't really admitting liability, but they will try to misconstrue it as an admission of liability. So I'm sorry, or we're sorry, or we're sorry this has happened. Those are the kind of things that people, when they say them, they're not meaning I'm sorry I messed up your case. They're just saying, I'm sorry you have you know, a problem. It's just decent, you know, basic human decency, but plaintiff's lawyers will twist that as an admission of liability. So that's why the it appears there's been a misunderstanding. Please contact our office to set up a time to discuss on the bad review side and then on the good review side, I think that one's almost more of a risk in some ways because if a patient just get, gets online and just writes this glowing review about your, you and your practice, you probably loved them as a patient. You want to get on and say, oh God, we loved you. You know, you were an awesome patient or you had such a great result because you complied with all your treatment instructions or something like that. But all of that again is protected health information that technically could constitute a HIPAA violation. So. Again, kind of a stock response on the positive side, you know, something like, you know, we love hearing great reviews like that, or thanks so much for the positive comments, or things like that that acknowledge the positive review, but they don't even acknowledge that the person was a patient, will keep you out of the HIPAA violation. And so then just to wrap all this up, just if anybody says, well, does all that stuff really matter? I watch in the legal news, there are cases that come out all the time where HHS is fining some practice, you know, $25,000 or $50,000 for committing a HIPAA violation in their responses to online reviews. So this is definitely one you need to be careful about because, you know, 99% of the time it may not ding you, but the one time it does, it can be really costly. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So you had mentioned something about saying, I'm sorry or certain languaging that we use just kind of casually that transfers to our professional environments. So, and we were talking specifically about online reviews, but would you make the same recommendation if a patient is talking to you in person um, about being 
strategic about how you answer something, particularly if you're not liable for what's what they're accusing you of or what their issue is. Yeah, it's the, I mean, as the lawyer, I definitely say that's something you need to have in the back of your mind. I mean, maybe not, you know, the second the patient, new patient walks in the door, you probably don't have to be thinking at that point about, okay, what do I need to do to not say something that's going to be a problem in the lawsuit eventually. But, you know, if you're, if you have a problem situation with the patient, if the patient is thrown out, you know, I ought to talk to a lawyer about this or the, those are the kind of red flags that maybe you do need to take the, the caution level up a notch at that point. And so you do need to start thinking through the lens of whatever I say in this case, how could this potentially be used, you know, a trial if this does end up as a malpractice case. And so those things like being aware of not saying things that could be misconstrued as an admission of liability or understanding, just understanding that if, if, if this is headed to trial, the patient's going to take everything back to their lawyer that you just said and, and make sure that somebody couldn't misinterpret it. Um, the one benefit of that in-person conversation that is a little different than the online that we just talked about, if you post something online, it's there in writing. It's up for the world to see. There's no disputing it. It's a little easier if you're talking about a a comment during conversation in person with the patient, there's other evidence that can come into that. You can say, well, no, I didn't mean it that way because of the context of the conversation or the patient said this before that. So your lawyer can help you out a little bit there when it's in writing. And especially when it's up online for the world to see, there's not much the lawyer can do to rescue you at that point. And that's why you've got to be even more careful there. But I, yeah, I would say that the second those red flags go up with the patient about this might be headed toward, you know, a legal or a dental board type of situation, then you probably do need to start thinking through a little different lens as far as what you say to the patient. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. I appreciate you going through that. And then not to freak people out who might not be currently freaked out about this, but like if you're having that in-person conversation, there have been some concerns about people using their cell phone as a recording device for that conversation. And so that's where I was coming from when I was asking, you know, should we have maybe an arsenal of responses that we're prepared with um, while we're deciding what's happened with this patient and how we want to proceed. And it sounds like the answer is yes, we should know yeah. how we want to respond. No. And that's, and that's a good question about the cell phone recording too, because that, that can add another wrinkle into it. Now, part of that depends on what state you're in, because some states require only, if you're going to record a conversation, some states only require the consent of one participant in the conversation. So that would be the patient, meaning they can hit, as long as they're the one doing it, they can hit record on their phone and they're legal under their state. And that could potentially come in as evidence. There are other states that require the consent of both participants of the conversation. So if a patient recorded you without your knowledge and didn't get your consent to record at first, then that wouldn't be admissible at trial because it was illegally recorded in your state. So it's not a bad idea to get on. That's one of those, unlike some legal questions, that one's really easy to find on Google might be helpful just to get on Google and quickly find out whether your state is a, a one person consent or a two person consent as far as recording conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So just to put a bow on that one, it's if somebody comes to you and they're obviously upset, decide in advance, what is your immediate response and what is your um, invitation to follow up with a more in-depth conversation where you can research the situation and decide how you want to proceed with that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Great. What else have I not asked you? I'm, I'm referring to this document again, but 
we've had such a good conversation. What else have I not asked you though, that would be really important for people to have on their mind when they're doing their inventory? Yeah. Um, so this is, this is kind of related to what we talked about with sweepstakes earlier, but this is another one when we talk about the online promotion and the things that people just don't even think about posing an issue is so any kind of referral incentives that you give patients. Um, I think uh, everybody thinks about, everybody knows fee splitting is illegal every state but when people think about fee splitting they think about some kind of a deal you know that an orthodontist works out with a gp where they pay them a certain percentage treatment fees for every referral that kind of thing i think what people don't always think about is the fact that things that you do with your you can fee split with the patient first of all it doesn't have to be another provider to fall under fee splitting and that some of those kind of incentives and referrals that practices use can potentially fall under fee splitting so um, the, the two elements there are if it's on a per patient basis and it is it meets the dollar threshold under your state's dental boards, then it then it could be fee splitting. So let's say you have a program where every new patient, you know, every new case start that we get referred to us, the patient that referred them gets a hundred dollar Amazon gift card. That could be fee splitting because it's for every referral and it would probably be over the dollar threshold in every state. So that is that is certainly one that I don't think practices think about that they need to. And then one other thing that's related to that, too, um, when uh, practices are doing a lot of things these days to kind of prompt good reviews or good testimonials from their patients. So maybe, you know, hey, go write a good review for us online. You get entered into a drawing or every patient that um writes a good review for us or, you know, on Google, or they provide us with the testimonial we can use, we'll give them a white free whitening kit or something like that. The FTC has really been cracking down over the last few years, the Federal Trade Commission on paid endorsements, and that definitely includes dental practices. So it's not that you can't do those kind of things, but if you are offering patients some kind of an incentive to write those good reviews or to provide those testimonials, then any advertising that you use that in, you need to have a disclaimer that says that patients were uh, received an incentive or, or uh, for providing that review or that endorsement. So it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be a big banner at the top of the page, the little fine print down at the bottom, down at the bottom of your web page or whatever is fine. But that's one, that's another one in particular, the FTC has really been looking at these and has dinged several um, dental practices and, and other medical practices lately for giving out those kind of incentives for the Google reviews and not disclosing that in the advertising that they use in that. Yeah, I've been seeing those more and more. Um, like this review was uh, a part of a promotion or gathered in, you know, in in response to an incentive. I've seen those more and more. I had an experience not too long ago, non-dental. Tulsa is pretty small, so I just want to clarify, non-dental. Um, and to not disparage anybody, it's really irrelevant where I was. But I was leaving an office and they said, hey, if you'll give us a five-star review before you leave, then we'll give you um, a Starbucks gift card. And I got to tell you, Trey, up until that point, it was actually a fantastic experience. But what I didn't like was that I was told exactly which review. It wasn't if you give us a review. It was if you give us a five-star review. And I was like, well, that's a little interesting. And um, and she said, and, I, and so I clarified with her. I said, can you tell me that again? And she said, yeah, if you give us a five-star review, and then actually I need you to flip your phone around and show me that you gave us a five-star and then we'll give you <laughs> like, okay. So I think like even just the human element of it, um, it may work. I'm sure it would work for a lot of people. Um, but just 
when you're talking about your reputation and actually serving the community that you're in and um, checking all of those boxes, whether it's a legal thing or not, I think there's a lot to be considered about how you're going about promoting your business. Cause ultimately that's what we want, right? We want to share that we do good work and that, um, people are pleased with their results and we want more people like you to come get those good, pleasing results from us. And so yeah. that's an honorable thing, but going about it in a way that feels good to everybody is really important to consider. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think completely separate from the legal considerations, it's the, you know, authenticity and marketing, especially right. authenticity is the, always the buzzword with social media. And if patients get, the impression that all of the your glowing comments have all been coerced or whatever, then it's going to lose that authenticity and lose the effectiveness. And the other benefit too, like in com contrast to what you said about leave us a five-star review and we'll give you some incentive. If you just said to patients, just leave us a review, you don't dictate, leave us a good review or anything like that, then you may not fall, you probably don't fall under the FTC's concerns because you're not endorsing patients for a good review you're just asking them for a review period. So that may fall outside of that. So even even aside from the authenticity and the kind of the purely marketing concerns we just talked about, I think there might be some legal reasons just to ask for a review and not ask for a positive or a five-star review. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Totally. We've got a, somebody asking a question. I've been in some practices that have a security camera in every operatory. Is that something that you see happening more and do you recommend it? You know, I think that varies widely from practice to practice. Obviously, there's a cost associated with that. And then, you know, the the concerns are, what, what are the concerns that prompted that? But at the same time with, you know, security situations, I can totally understand why practices would do that. So the, as far as the legality of that, you're going to want to check what the law is in your state because different states have different laws and disclosing to people. This kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the recording of conversations. There are varying levels that you need to let somebody know that they're being recorded in any way, whether that's security footage or otherwise. And so um, if you want to do that, just talk with an attorney in your state, find out what the law is in your state. It may you know, it may be something that you have to notify every patient individually. It may just require that you have a sign up in your practice, maybe a sign in the waiting room, just saying that security cameras are in use. But I think in many states, there would be some requirements that patients need to be notified in some way that they're doing that. Now, the other wrinkle to all of that, this is the wonderful world of HIPAA, the, that cloud that never seems to go away, is because those security cameras are picking up patients' PHI, you know, they're information about their treatment because you're literally videoing the treatment underway then you you know if you like say your say your sister has a restaurant and they put up security cameras in their restaurant and, and you she says oh we had a great experience with it so you hire the same company for them obviously that company's not thinking about HIPAA concerns mm -hmm. when they install the cameras in the restaurant they need to think about them you need to make sure that the company that you're working with does everything in a HIPAA compliant way and that's going to require encryption for any um you know, lines of transmission where that like if that footage goes back to a central server for the company you need to make sure that that's an encrypted transmission you're going to need to make sure that the company signs a business associate agreement as far as the you know if they store the footage so there's some things like that so if you're going to do something like that with the cameras in your practice make sure that your the company providing those cameras is uh, knows what the HIPAA requirements are and is complying with them and you get a business associate agreement and all those kind of things. 
Wow, such good thoughts and ones I definitely wouldn't have thought of. And so it's always why I love having people like you in our corner. So what else? What else do you have for me today? Um, you know, I, I th- this is the point in the conversation where I feel like we've scared everybody to death as it is. And so <laughs> the, the, as you are, you know, some of this makes for really interesting cocktail party conversation, but at a point you learn to just shut up because otherwise yeah. people say, yeah, that was really useful. I don't ever want to hang out with that guy again, though, because I had nightmares. <laughs> no, I totally I get it. Yeah, I get the same types of responses. I'm like, I can coach you on that. They're like, no, no, I don't want to be coached right now. But yeah, okay, so let's say somebody does have other questions. Um, First of all, you have a really fantastic Instagram account that I follow. Tell me, is it The Ortho Attorney? Yeah, it's The Ortho Attorney. The Ortho Attorney. Ortho Attorney. I was trying to make it, I was trying to make it the same number of syllables as orthodontist. Apparently, I found out since then, Ortho Attorney is is much less confusing. But yeah, it is, it is at The Ortho Attorney, all one word. And so... Yeah, that really what that is, is we have like in my role is with the AAO, we share all the kind of legal information that we're talking about uh, today. We share out with members and I recognize really quickly that there's kind of nobody wanted to make sure the rest of the dental community could benefit from that information, too. And so and also even our own AAO members is, you know, every association in the world, the ADA every other association you, you struggle with what's the most effective way to communicate with our members and you know the emails and the newsletters and the things that worked 10 or 20 years ago people are social media driven and you know seven second reels and TikTok videos and those kind of things so the ortho attorney was a way for AO members to get that information to them in a, in a communication format that's maybe a little more relevant for many of them and then also an opportunity for us to be a, a, a benefit to the dental community as a whole and get the information to those outside of the orthodontic world too. Yeah. Well, I really enjoy it. You got to keep doing it. And so the orth attorney and yep. um, any other, any other places you want to direct people to? Uh, certainly if you're an AO member, the AO member website has a lot of legal resources. So things like patient contracts, you know, informed consents, informed consents for supplemental or supplemental informed consents for specific procedures, releases and, you know, for liability and all of those kind of forms and a lot of blog articles and, and news type of articles about the things we're talking about. If you're not an orthodontist, uh, but you're an ADA member, they've got very similar resources too. So I'm always surprised at the, AO members that call in and don't even realize that we have all of that. So I would say anybody in the dental community, what whatever associations you're a part of, make sure that you're taking full advantage of the legal resources that they already have up on their websites for their members. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you, Trey. This was a lot of fun. I learned a lot and I'm really excited about this conversation. Okay, good. No, I'm glad. And, and again, to everybody who's listening, I hope that, you know, if you have nightmares, <laughs> Because there are 20 things that you never even thought of were legal risks, then please get my go on my Instagram, get my legal issue inventory, and start working through those things. I really don't want people losing sleep over these legal issues, and uh, so hopefully that wasn't the net uh, result of this conversation. No, I felt like it was enriching, but that is why we do these things on Friday, so we don't impact their work week too much. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, have a good day, Trey. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate you joining me for today's episode. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. 
and visit dentallife.coach for access to additional coaching tools, as well as more episodes to help you create the dental life you truly desire.